Stay tuned for Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. And this is Mike Fader. As most of you know, uh, this is roughly, uh, I suppose people differ on the exact date, not that it makes any difference, roughly the second anniversary, the birth of the Occupy movement. And this show is called Occupied Territory America. I set it up in October two years ago uh, to try to further the goals of the Occupy movement. And um, we're going to talk a lot about what uh, one of the main um, goals of the Occupy movement was, which was to try to address, if not actually eradicate, ultimately, income equality. But there are other things, too, which develop over time, because everything is connected. But today we have with us Kevin Zeese, who is a uh, co-host of a show called Clearing the Fog on We Act Radio, which is at 1480 a.m. in Washington, D.C. It's 1480 a.m. Washington, D.C., um, on um, Economic Democracy Media. Kevin, is that the name of it, Economic Democracy Media? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a Ustream uh, uh, station. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin also uh, directs It's Our Economy and is an organizer of popularresistance.org, which uh, I think is the, the main place you should check out for the latest communiques, um, organizing materials. Uh, the stated goals are on there, so that's a place to go, popularresistance.org. Um, recently you sent out a kind of a, I guess you and Margaret Flowers sent out a, a communique, or I don't know what you would call it, but uh, kind of an update on where we are right now. And the uh, headline on Alternet says, People, Power, Help, Prevent a War is a Transformational Moment Upon Us. I, you know, nobody wants to get their hopes up, given the record of American culture and politics, but it does, there's a feeling you get in the air, right, when you see something like this, although, as you point out, and as everybody knows, it was a strange bedfellows joining of Americans, right? Yeah, it was really an interesting uh, broad-based reaction to war. Uh, I think people remember Iraq, they remember the lies that got us into Iraq. They see Afghanistan as an ongoing disaster. They see the drone program creating more enemies around the world. And they just don't want another war. They, 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 people see that uh, going into Syria would not be a simple task, and it would be another entanglement, another quagmire. And they, they, across the political spectrum, people rose up and said, no, we don't want another war. And the Congress reported getting in uh, uh, emails and phone calls uh, in, in the range of 500 to 1, 500 opposed and 1 in favor, even some of us are saying 1,000 to 1. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a mess, overwhelming. And by the time Obama finally found the diplomatic way out, uh, thanks to Russia, uh, the, the vote in Congress was over. The, you know, people had been counting heads, and it was like a supermajority was already opposed to going right. to war in the House, and it was not going to pass. It was, it, was a, it, was a, it, was dead, it was dead in Congress. You know what I regret is that, uh, you know, obviously I'm glad there's a peaceful solution to anything, but what I regret is, and I think they could probably stu- still do this legally, is uh, the president submitted... Um, a resolution to Congress. They could still vote on it. I would like to see them vote it down, even though there's this tri- uh, the peace negotiations are going on. You know what I'm saying? I totally agree. I, I, I was hoping there'd be a, I, 
I knew about. I mean, I, I worried Obama would find this way out before the vote. I mean, I think I would much rather have been forced into a diplomatic uh, approach, and so we could have shown, shown right. the political power. But there's so many head counts by mainstream sources, by uh, groups like Fire Dog Lake, for to ABC News, a range of, and they all come to the same conclusion. It was like 250 or 60 votes against the war. When you need 217 to, to pass something, so it was overwhelmingly against it. There's still about 40 undecided, so it could have been a 300 vote uh, against the war, which would have been quite amazing. I wish it had happened. Still, yeah, still, you'd love to see that uh, super font size headline in the New York <laughs> Times. You know, like just the same way you saw it with Brink, with England. I mean, that was really worth its weight in gold to see That's right. the British Parliament say, "No, we can't be a poodle to them anymore." So. That's right. Uh, but one of the other things you're mentioning in here, which people don't know that much about, and because the media would never report on it, is uh, these two, there's two huge trade agreements being negotiated now without the benefit of any public input and, in fact, even congressional input, the, the theoretical representatives of the people. One is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the other one is there's a, a U.S.-European trade negotiation going on now, too, which have both the same goals in mind, which is kind of a corporate global government with no rights for citizens in any country. It really is an amazing uh, media blackout on this. Uh, we know the media is aware of it, and, and we know we sent them stuff. I've been at events where I'm on a panel with media people, and I said, have you, you know, I mentioned this. They're, they're aware of it, and they're just not reporting on it. Uh, and it, the trans Pacific Partnership and the, the transatlantic version we call TAFTA, uh, is a, a really a global corporate coup against us. It sets up its own judiciary system called trade tribunals, building on what's existed with NAFTA, and it, uh, it allows corporations to sue governments for lost profits. Mm -hmm. If they pass an environmental law or a labor law, the corporation can sue for the profits they expect to get before that law was passed. Uh, and it has to do with things like worker safety. I mean, uh, you yes, name it. Every you name issue. It. Yeah. You name the issue, and if their internet freedom uh, will be affected by this, healthcare will be affected by this. It's going to really, it's, it's, the, it's the corporations grabbing all they can. And it's been negotiated in secret by the Obama administration now for almost four years. Uh, and he's secret except for the 600 corporate advisors who see it in live time and can read it and make suggestions, specific edits to the text. We have not seen a text except for portions that have been leaked. Mm -hmm. uh, and only, only you know, one member of Congress who went through the gauntlet, took a month to do it, to get to see the text. That was Alan Grayson. And, and even he didn't get to see the full text. He got to see summaries uh, of some of them. And he, he was told this was classified. He could not bring a paper, pen, and pencil. He could not bring a computer or a phone or any staff. He could read it and retain it and not take anything in or out with him. And he was told it was classified, and he could not discuss it with his constituents. Well, it's this is the first time ever a trade agreement has been, been classified as secret. Well, it's extraordinary. And, and what it brings up is the fact that, um, as you mentioned in this article here, and I'm sure that a lot of people have this feeling, there's a feeling in the air that uh, the world seems to be going in one of two directions, or maybe it's going in two directions at the same time. There's a gigantic feeling of uprising everywhere. But at the right. same moment, you have these uh, these concentrated, uh, you know, sort of hardening globalization partners taking over the whole world and creating armies and laws and governments in secret at the same moment that there's a feeling of uprising. I don't know what can come of this, but it looks as if we're going to have ultimately one world. But what kind of world is it going to be? 
Well, you know, this is interesting. Uh, when you when you see um, a movement grow, you often see the status quo stiffen its back. And, you know, you saw this in the civil rights movement. Just to put a little distance at it, you can look at the civil rights movement, for example, and you can see, you know, the, 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 the water hoses and the dogs uh, attacking protesters and the uh, Wallace blocking this school from uh, integrating. You can see the, uh, the in Boston, you can see the strikes, the work against uh, desegregating the schools. The status quo stiffens its back when they, they really feel threatened. And it's almost like the more the status quo stiffens its back, the more we know we're making progress. Mm-hmm. And so it's not unusual to have this kind of dichotomy. I think this dichotomy is a sign of how how progress happens. It's hiding the conflict between two opposing forces, the status quo that wants to profit from the pollution, the low wages, the unfair economy, the you know, the oil-based economy and the threat to climate change, and they want to profit from all that. They don't want to lose that profit. And people who are saying, hey, we can't live this way anymore, and what I see happening really is the, the resistance side growing. I mean, it's so interesting, you know, you just mentioned in the outset this was the anniversary of Occupy, mm-hmm. and you listen to some of the mainstream commentators, and they say, where did Occupy go? It's, it, it's defeated, it disappeared. We see quite the opposite. At popularresistance.org, we cover the Occupy and resistance movements and social justice movements on a daily basis, and uh, we see people over the country organizing in such a wide variety of ways not always in resistance and protest, but often in building new alternatives, uh, new economic institutions. Oh, I, and, that, and that's something I see all the time, because I I, now I choose no longer to have anybody. The only person I will interview on the air is Alan Grayson, who I do interview from time to time. But the rest of them, forget about it. You know? but, yeah, who, but who I do have on all the time, and what actually does encourage me is just what you're talking about, is I have people on from a county in northeastern Pennsylvania that managed to actually get the uh, the gas companies to retreat from the entire county, exactly. that kind exactly. of thing, everywhere. I talked to a, a woman who is the mayor of Richmond, California, who's, exactly. who's using eminent domain to seize right. mortgages from banks. This is what we need to see, right? And there's a lot of it going on. I mean, it's amazing. You know, we, that offer you saw an alternate is a weekly uh, review right. that we do of what's going on in the movement. And we do it as a newsletter for popular resistance, and we kind of change it and make it a little longer. Uh, for alternate, uh, each Saturday they publish it now, and uh, you know we're always amazed at how much is going on. So, I mean, uh, I'm working on an article now uh, for Truth Out for next Wednesday. We do a weekly Wednesday article on Truth Out based on our radio show, <laughs> and this one's going to be about uh, the status of the movement. And it's just you know, so we start to write about it. And it's just so much going on. It's so broad. It's so deep. Uh, there's so much more. People get fooled by this. There's no more encampments. The Occupy is dead. That, the encampment was a tactic. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of tactics. And you know, we don't have to be occupying a public square and sleeping outside and you know, trying to feed people and, and, uh, and survive outside when we're doing so much other work that broadens and deepens the movement. And it's, got, it's, it's, it's more powerful than it was two years ago. It's, but, it's much more powerful. Now, that's a good thing to know. But you do have to admit that one of the things that people in America, people believe what they see on television, right? You know, uh, but the fact that the uh, police state, basically the police state, you know, uh, whatever its form that it took in different cities, uh, basically attacked and eradicated the the Occupy, uh, you know, spots, the the encampments. That made a difference. And the media, uh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, for them to say that they don't see it anymore, they don't see it because they didn't see it when it was there, and they helped for it to go away. 
<laughs> no. I, what what encampment? What 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 Occupy movement? Yeah. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand it when it was there. They didn't realize what it was, and they still don't get it. But, you know, I, I, I agree that, you know, being in the media is important. But yeah. the, look at Syria. Syria, for more than a year now, CNN and the other networks have been really trying to push us into war with Syria. Their propaganda has been aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, always showing whatever they can to horrify people and, and hate Assad. And he's a tyrant and paint this one-dimensional uh, image of a dictator, and he, who's a guy, I'm not a big Assad fan, but it's much more complicated than that. And they, they've been drum, beating the drum for war for more than a year. And what did it accomplish? That people didn't buy it. I think we are, you know, we say that the media is so important. We are living in a bit of a past mm-hmm. because the media is changing a lot. Uh, the, you know, the newspapers are are failing financially. They have less readers. Uh, cable news shows have less viewers. Mm-hmm. Even the biggest cable news shows has maybe a million viewers. Most are in the hundreds of thousands. The biggest media source these days now is just people talking to each other uh, and, and trusted sources through social media talking to their friends, their colleagues, their family. Uh, that is much more powerful than corporate media has become well, as, also, as far as credibility. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And also the, uh, and it's also a generational thing, as you point out frequently, right. and, and as you mentioned in this article. What I see all the time is, because I'm hooked up with this whole network, is there are hundreds of radio stations like yours and other places out there, and the one that the show, kind of show that we do here at uh, PRN, and they are, they are growing by leaps and bounds. Now, they're all small. Right. Some come out of people's basements. Some have like three right. people. But they're right. beginning to add up, and there's a, there is, and between the net, uh, alternative uh, websites, between blogs and social media, there's no there's no um, wondering why in dictatorial in dictatorships out out and out dictatorships, not the one we're building up to here, but ones that are already established, they frequently will just shut down permanently or interfere with blogs and and social networks. You know. Yeah, that 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 is a big risk we face because we rely rely heavily on 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 the uh, internet yeah. and on things like Facebook and Twitter, which are corporate controlled. I mean, they they're there for profit, and uh, mm-hmm. if they want to shut us down, they can shut us down. And that's that's a big problem that we face in the future. We need to find some alternative method of communication. But right now, I think people are starting to act in a synergistic way uh, through social media. Citizens Media, independent media, the independent websites, and we are getting, we are, we are competing with the corporate media uh, as far as inform- getting information out. People are doubting the corporate media more and more mm-hmm. because they're getting alternative sources. And so I think the Syrian stopping the Syrian war is an example of how that can work. I think the TPP, you know, the corporate media shuts it down, but more and more people are learning about it. We are seeing, you know, I, I know a year and a half ago. I speak to an activist audience, and I always ask who has heard of the TPP. Almost nobody would raise their hand. Now I go in front of an audience uh, of activists, more than half raise their hand. And that's the key group. You know, I don't, I don't, we don't have to get everybody in the country on our side to win. We need 1% to 5% of the people in the country to be active for us to win. That's all it takes. You know, with Occupy, we were about 0.1%, one-tenth mm-hmm. of 1%. And look how it scared the power source. You talked about the tactics used to shut down the encampments, arrest people, uh, infiltrate, divide, to, you know, you know, cause problems. Mm-hmm. They, they did all they could to shut us down and, and make us go away. With one-tenth of one of 1%, uh, 
uh, involved. When we get to 1%, we're probably getting pretty close to that, 1% involved, uh, it's going to scare the power structure. And there's research that shows that the tipping point for victory is 5%. When we get 5% of the public active and engaged on issues, on, on an issue that has broad support, you win. No matter what kind of government it is, and I think that the, the broad support issue is end the rule of money, shift power to the people. That's what we want. We want a real democracy. We want participatory democracy and economic democracy. And uh, you know, we're looking for uh, social justice, economic justice, environmental protection, and peace. And that's what we're looking for. I think the public supports all those issues in supermajority numbers. And so, you know, one to five percent of us get active pushing for that. We win. Mm-hmm. We put forward on popularresistance.org, if you go to the About Us page or the strategy page, we put forward a strategy of how we can win, what we got, what we have to do to be successful. Well, that's that's so, so that's the kind of question I would ask you, though, because, uh, you know, uh, what can give me give some concrete examples, because people look at things now and they give up reading the news. They give up checking with the news. And I'm beginning to think it's a generational thing, because most of the people I know, my generation, which is the 60s generation, right? I mean, I'm sort of plugged into this because I just don't want to let people get away with the murder like they're doing. But a lot of people have just sort of – I know people, for instance, who are out there in the streets doing you know, youth movements and student movements and being part of that 1% to 5% back in the 60s, which overturned some bad government policies. But they have basically given up. So it is almost always in every generation up to younger people, right? Well, younger people definitely bring a lot of new energy. They haven't been beaten down as much uh, by the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I see this as a multi-generational movement. I think there are a lot of people from the 60s uh, and 70s uh, who are still active today. Uh, I, I just saw a protest, in fact, this morning we put up on popularresistance.org of, of people trying to shut down Vermont Yankee nuclear immediately. You know, they've already agreed they're going to close it down by 2014, people are saying, we want to shut down now. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they're, they're out there chaining themselves to the gate. These are not young people. These are older people. So there are people active from the 60s and 70s. There are people active from the 90s in the anti-globalization movement. There are people active in the early part of this century in the anti-Iraq war movement. And there are people active from the occupies. So we have a multi-generational group of activists now. And I think you can point to some successes. You, you meant we started out with the Syrian war. We stopped the Syrian war. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, the TPP is running into big trouble in Congress already. They, can't, they wanted to have fast track, which would have allowed right. Obama to sign this law without Congress being involved. They wanted to do that in June. They've been unable to even get introduced. They can't agree on introducing something. Now they may not get introduced till the end of the year. So that's having trouble. People and I see, I see uh, there's another thing. And this is always, I go back to this localization of things, which is essential. I see in Washington that there may be finally a successful movement. You know, in California, they tried the GM, GMO labeling, and, right. uh, you know, the companies rallied and spent, I don't know, $40 million to defeat it. That's right. But that's in right. Washington, they're also spending a lot of money, but it doesn't look like it might get defeated. So that's interesting. Exactly. That, that's how often happens with initiatives. You know, people uh, hear about it, the uh, opposition, the status quo uh, keeps it in place, but people have learned something in that first campaign. Now in the second campaign, they've heard about it before. They're fighting it again. Washington State looks like right now it's 70% support for GMO labeling. We'll see. So we may have a victory there. But Obama multiple times has tried to, uh, you know, uh, curtail Social Security mm-hmm. uh, over and over and over and over again. And he's been stopped every time. We're mm-hmm. stopping him from doing that. 
Uh, Larry Summers was Obama's favorite choice. Uh, he right. stopped. That's he true. Stopped. That's true. That's he another triumph because I know that yeah. everybody in the alternative media was hammering on that. I mean, exactly. everybody. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we stopped that. We need to look at our victories and understand them. We are winning. We are winning. We're having an impact. We're reshaping the direction of the country despite Obama, despite the Republican Congress and this and, 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 the, and the conservative Senate. So we are actually winning already, and we and on top of those victories, which are the big ones, you know, you can see. You can also see at the local level so many things developing. You can see many more community markets, much more community-supported agriculture, because you worker cooperatives coming across the country. I mean, there's example after you can see alternative currencies, new currencies in, in various cities, mm-hmm. alternatives to the government currency. You can see time time banks where people will volunteer their time and get credits. So they can then get someone else to volunteer time at their house or do the, or take care of their kid or whatever they need. They can find a, a, someone to volunteer their time. You're seeing all sorts of people opting out of the a dominant economic system in new ways. And so there's a lot of victories happening and a lot of movement building going on. Well, that, that... You know, Occupy, Occupy Sandy. Occupy Sandy, massive efforts, still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, they're organizing people in, in Queens, in Brooklyn, in lower Manhattan, in Staten Island. They're working with community groups to alleviate the problems that the government has not been able to deal with. And they're still doing it. So but, when you do that kind of work, you build a broad base. Let me let me ask you this question though, and uh, all this is encouraging, and I don't get encouraged that easily, especially after the last couple of decades. But I am encouraged. But when I look at the, and I pay a lot of attention to history, you know, uh, there was always um, uh, police and central government um, resistance and crackdown on what they saw as uh, deviant or aberrant behavior. You can go all the way back to 1919 with these tremendous raids against socialism, sure. anarchists, sure. communists. Yeah. So there's always been the Justice Department, uh, which should, should be the Injustice Department, just like it should be the War Department. But basically, you've got Hoover, you've got the FBI. I mean, this is not a new thing in the world. But I, in all my years, with all my reading, have never seen such a centralized shared data um, militarized police force in the United States in every possible way. This is something that we all have to go up against that we never had to go up against before, you know. Yeah, well, we also have new tools that they didn't have, and we have uh, quicker communication that they didn't have in the past. Um, I, you know, I, I, yes, of course, there is. Uh, that's part of the uh, rising of the conflict uh, between the status quo and the forces of change. And, you know, even though there has always been a, a strong uh, police force against mm-hmm. us, look at the changes that have occurred in the last hundred years. I mean, it's a whole, you know, you, no more child labor, uh, no more no more segregation, women are voting. I mean, you could just go back on a whole lot of Social Security didn't exist, Medicare didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So even despite all of the pushback, progress has been made. My sense right now is the pushback is going to be even bigger than those movements have. We are, I mean, the, the rumbling below the surface of the corporate media is a mass, broad-based movement, mm-hmm. and people understand the problem. They have new sources of information. They're not as easily manipulated by the media. Uh, and they're seeing, and as they see people have successes, and it's so important for us to trouble our successes, as they see us have successes, 
they see us building alternative institutions that can function, they will join the movement. They'll see that after we're successful, there'll still be somewhere to get food. Well, you know, one reason, one reason we're going to be one reason I think it'll be successful is because still, essentially, until something changes one day, it's a capitalist society. So, for instance, you might find, you might discover that all of a sudden Wolf Blitzer is appealing to young people, or the New York Times is having more articles following what young people want to hear because it makes money. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is that that's one of the interesting things about uh, the media situation is as we get more successful in getting our version of the of the narrative out, uh, it makes the corporate media less and less um, credible and less and less profitable. And in order to be profitable and credible, they need to uh, go with what we're saying because they need to report our narrative right. because otherwise they're just not going to be believed and not going to listen to newspapers. People will tune them out, and all of a sudden they can't sell the latest video game or whatever it is they're selling. You know exactly. But still, it's it's it is odd when I go to Alternet or other places that are pop, very popular alternative sites. You know, you're still going to see the ad because it's it's Google or whatever it is. You're going to see the ads for whatever it is that I was looking around for four years ago, like arthritis medicine, weightlifting, know, you know, know, bikinis. I mean, the same crap is there even when you're reading about overturning a materialistic society. I mean, where is that? I know. You know what it's is so that? Bizarre sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I ignore that. it, right? You ignore it, right? We all ignore yeah, I can't, it. I can't imagine those ads are very successful. But yeah, I do see it. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's unfortunate. We really, really need to figure out. Uh, one of the things we need to change is how we actually fund media. And uh, Robert McChesney came up with a pretty interesting idea about that. He suggested that every person be given a certain amount of dollars per year, you know, five hundred dollars, whatever, uh, in a in a tax rebate that they are allowed to spend on media. Hmm. And in that way, you have a broad based um, pool of money. Uh, $500 for each person to spend on media, and then you'd have a media created by what people actually want to see. Oh, that would that'd, lo- be a, that, yeah. that'd be really interesting. I would love to have uh, some kind of a gigantic web browser that had no ads on it. You know what I mean? It's, sure. But, sure, wouldn't it be nice if we weren't based on an advertising-based media, but a public interest-based media? I mean, it's so much better. Well, then we're talking about a major shift, which I always hope happens. Well, it's, it isn't. We're talking about a major shift. We're well, I mean, I mean specifically economically, too. I mean, we, I think yeah, we really no, need I to... we gotta, we got to ditch capitalism. we really got to ditch it. You know, we so. have a, we, I, think that, I think that's becoming something more and more popular. If you look at, in fact, again, the youth... Uh, asked about, you know, capitalism versus socialism. The majority of youth now, a plurality of youth now prefer socialism to capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, and so I think more and more people are getting it and, uh, and that more and more people are participating in it. And really under the surface, there's been a very growing economic democracy movement where people have more control, uh, you know, joining things like co-ops and credit unions, which some would call socialist. Uh, it's maybe a former socialism, but it's not state centered socialism, mm-hmm. a government center, you know, so, uh, but already you have about 150 million Americans who are involved in some kind of cooperative or credit union. That's almost half the population. Oh, also, you know, I was talking, I'm talking to some other people who are, uh, who are always pointing to the Bank of North Dakota. It's the only state right. bank. Public banks. It's That's a public right. bank, and that is the solution, really, to our biggest capitalist problem. That's the banks very are very big. Banking, banking. Sixty-five percent. They have sixty-five percent. Of the money and the assets in the country, they basically run the country. They all, they literally own the country. And if we could bust these banks up and have them all be state banks, I mean, really be safe home. 
you know. And more and more people feel that way. You know, we put up on the on the website this week a couple of polls about uh, how people feel about the, the banking crisis. It's the anniversary of Lehman's collapse. Right. You know, uh, uh, many Americans want to see the banks broken up. They want to see more prosecutions. They want to see more regulation. Uh, so people are with us on, on, on those kinds of changes. You know, during the feudal era, when there was a feudal economy, inside the feudal economy there were markets. People selling right. vegetables and stuff. And so a bubble of market economy grew up in the feudal economy and became capitalism and overtook the feudal economy. Inside this capitalist economy is growing a economic democracy movement, and it's getting very large. And, you know, we may see the capitalist economy collapse of its own, collapse of people leaving it, and you'll see this uh, economic democracy new alternative economy to overtake it. I think that's going to happen. Whether that's in the next five years or 20 years, I don't know. But it's developing right now. You can see this bubble of economic democracy growing at the same time that uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the current economy of, of capitalism is collapsing. So it's a very interesting mixture of things happening in the economy, and I even say some, see some transformative change developing there as well. Uh, you're listening to Kevin Zeese, uh, that's Z-E-E-S-E, and uh, tell me about the radio show that you do. That's a fun show. We, uh, you know, we, it's called Clearing the Fog Radio. It's the website's clearingthefogradio.org. Okay. It's a one-hour, uh, and fog stands for forces of greed. Uh, so it's a one-hour <laughs> kind of okay. go in depth on particular issues, and we do it every week from uh, on Monday from 11 to 12. It's podcast and available, you know, on video as well. Uh, and so you're clearing the fog radio.org to get past shows. And then what we, we do also is we do an article based on the show uh, for Truth Out every Wednesday. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, we, we try to get more more bang for the buck of the show. It's a, it, it, we thought it would just kind of be a little fun thing to do along the side, but it's become kind of central to a lot of our work. We just think that developing citizen media uh, is critical. Well, there is, a, there, there is actually uh, a movement, uh, and who knows, right. consider, considering what... <laughs> Considering the criticism, and sometimes I felt it was justified, of the Occupy movement doing, being too um, horizontal with actually no, no apparent structure, but that's a whole other argument I don't feel like having because it's like an ancient argument. But, but based on that, there is somebody, and I know him, uh, who is trying to organize a, a kind of a media network. Uh, without imposing any rules on it, but just a, a linked media network of shows like yours and mine. And in fact, yeah, my show is rebroadcast. I'm sure yours is rebroadcast. Now, this stuff is really going to happen. There's going to be a gigantic non-profit, you know, syndicated radio, and it's it's starting to be born right now. People don't know about it, but it's happening. Yeah. Well, definitely count us in. We're very interested in being part of that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of shows with Occupy a Name or with uh, uh, the Empire, Empire Challenge. Or, you know, there's a lot of people doing good work in media uh, that, that deserve more recognition and I think would be much more credible uh, to listeners and viewers. And so I hope that's what happens. We also do, by the way, a, a weekly video report. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis Dennis Trainer. Dennis Trainer, yeah. Uh, he does it uh, with us, and it's. Uh, you can also subscribe. We uh, see those on uh, popularresistance.org at the top left. You can see our weekly newsletters and also the weekly video. Uh, so it's a, so it's uh, people should go to popularresistance.org. Let, let me ask you one last question, Kevin Zeese. Um, 
the mayor of Richmond, who I interviewed, uh, who is yes. a real salt-of-the-earth kind of person, is it's a city yes. of 106,000 people, and they, Wall Street yes. already sent 52 lawyers to knock her out in federal court for intending to do what she wants to do. This is, and they, the, the judge said, give me a break, and threw it out of court, thank God. you know. Yeah, yeah. But they Amazing. sent lawyers there to, to sue her before she even did anything. All right, so she's doing this. You know she was elected on the Green Party ticket twice. That's right. And so right. the, the question I want to ask you is, where do you think, after all, this is still a democracy and people vote for their government. It's not a, like an anarchy or a totally horizontal society. Uh, we have a duopoly, the, these two party systems, which are both corporate parties. Where does this stand as far as voting in third parties? What's your opinion on that? Well, I've been a, uh, I haven't voted Democrat or Republican since the early 90s. And mm-hmm. So I've been I broke from that system a while ago, and I was Ralph Nader's spokesperson in 2004 when he ran for president. I ran for office as a U.S. Senate candidate for Maryland in 2006 with the Green Party, Libertarian Party, and Populist Party all nominating me. I've been the only person ever nominated by the Greens and Libertarians. Hmm. But I see the system as pretty much a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a mirage democracy right now. It's very much a managed democracy where we're allowed to vote, but they manage who we can vote for. Right. And they, they limit us on the corporate media. They limit, they, they limit us by campaign spending. Uh, also the debates. You never get to see anybody. Debates, but, yeah. Debates, ballot access, the systems of voting. So it's a very corrupt um, a democracy right now. So, how, so, so how do you, how, how, if you're a voter and you want to vote for a candidate? I would never vote for a Democrat or Republican. I think if you're, the challenge we face today is corporate power, and voting for a corporate party is not going to challenge that. I'm part of the Green Shadow Cabinet, by the way, greenshadowcabinet.us. You should have people on from that. I'm the Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret Flowers, is, my partner, is the Secretary of Health. There's about 90 people involved. It's a very impressive group of people who are involved in it. Uh, it came out of the Jill Stein campaign. It's not part of the Green Party, uh-huh. but it's uh, but it's a, a, an alternative government. Okay, oh, well, you know, I'm going to send you an email uh, later on today, and you can give me the, the details, and I'll invite somebody on from there. Great. Uh, all right, so Kevin Zies, uh, popularresistance.org is a good place to start. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, this is Mike Fader. This is Occupied Territory America. How much? How much time do we have left? Give me a twenty-five minutes. Okay, let's take a, let's take a break and then we'll come back. All right, this is Mike Fader, and it's Occupied Territory America. We are here every week, like clockwork, <laughs> like Swiss clockwork. Do people still talk about that? Like a, like a Swiss watch. I don't know. We're here every week from um, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, live streaming. And uh, we also have podcasts of this show on prn.fm. 
there are other ways of getting this show, and uh, you should go to prn.fm. I think they can uh, tell you different ways. You can call up on the phone, your smartphone. Uh, there's something called Stitcher. There's many different ways of getting these broadcasts, and this station is growing by leaps and bounds. We have tens of thousands of people downloading you know, various programs, sometimes hundreds of thousands in the aggregate. So this station and a lot of alternative media is growing. It's important. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, and as a lot of us know who, who still pay attention to these things, this is roughly the second anniversary of when the Occupy movement, that is to say these encampments, uh, just sort of blossomed like flowers all over the country and in a couple of other places, uh, a couple of other countries too, in, in Montreal and Toronto and London. Um, they lasted for uh, a month or two here, three months, four months, five months, and then uh, Homeland Security... Uh, funded the cops along with the Justice Department, the FBI, and you name it, and various police department intelligence forces and state police and local police. And they came in there with their laser blasters and their um, pepper spray and their pepper pepper rubber bullets and, uh, you know, with, the, with their clubs and uh, with their armor on, looking like something like Imperial Stormtroopers, literally out of that movie, and just beat everybody up and chased everybody out. And on top of that, attack the press. And, of course, the press, who, you know, who should be, you know, broiling alive in shame. Uh, a lot of these people were beat up. There were people from the New York Times in New York City and Bloomberg, one of the worst corporate police heads we ever had. Um, he sent his cops in as soon as he could get away with it. And what's what's what was important here is that he could get away with it because, uh, and this is part of the discussion we had earlier, is that the corporate media... Um, the newspapers, the New York Times in this city, um, and then there's you know CBS, ABC, NBC, all of the networks, all of the regular networks, and also a lot of the cable stations. I mean, if you still waste your time looking at MSNBC because you think that's in any way liberal or progressive, um, I guess everybody has a right to listen to what they want. But of course, it is just not. They ignored or and or sometimes ridiculed the um, the Occupy movement. And that's what happened. This is not the first time in history that the media has cooperated, corporate media has cooperated with uh, repressive forces in the government and with the uh, government's behavior towards its own citizens and for international policy. I'm reading a book now, which even though you think you know everything, <laughs> it's terrible. To, you know, I hate talking about my own country this way, but you have to have a sober clear-eyed, intelligent, humane view of the society you live in. This country is perhaps one of the most, certainly it is one of the most duplicitous, violent, disgusting imperial entities that has ever lived. We are right up there along with the Roman Empire and the Nazis and the British colonial government. Now, we don't perpetrate the same mass destruction uh, at the moment, you know, in the 20th and 21st century that the Nazis did, that the Soviets did, that the Chinese did, killing off tens of millions of their own citizens, just murdering them because they expressed some alternative point of view or they didn't like them or they didn't want to be rounded up to be on some communal uh, farm. Uh, we haven't yet done that. But on the other hand, we come from a rich tradition of this kind of stuff. We go all the way back in this country. This country is, don't forget, don't ever forget, and I don't know how much they teach this in school anymore, this country is founded on the mass 
genocide of millions of people who lived here before the Europeans arrived. We murdered, we murdered or caused to die or starve to death or, or, or uh, killed by deliberately giving diseases to the people who lived here before we got here. We stole, the whole country is based on a theft this is the talk about in the 60s. We used to talk about, and I know this sounds like old hippie jargon, about bad karma. Well, karma exists. Nobody made that up in the 60s after they were smoking pot on some Lower East Side floor somewhere, right? Karma is an ancient concept, and it's based, it's not necessarily have to be a spiritual or religious concept. It's based on the reality that you can see. What you do will come back to you. What you say, how you act, the way you act in your life with people you know at work, what you do in the world, what you perpetrate on the world, will come back to you. It may not come back to you in this life. Too bad for people like Dick Cheney or whatever. But it will come back to you. And as a country, our karma is about as bad as it gets. So we stole an entire country from a bunch of people who lived in it who had no concept good for them, of ownership. The original people who lived there had no, almost no concept whatsoever of owning anything or making a profit. And they managed to live for thousands and thousands of years just fine without it. Yeah, they had tribal wars. They had their own kind of sadism and viciousness. You can't, you know, you can't like white everything out, right? To use a certain color word. <laughs> you can't white it all out. You can't whitewash it. Uh, they had certain practices which, uh, you know, you can't celebrate, but they managed to live in this one particular way. They managed to live without a concept of ownership of the earth or of minerals or the abundance that they saw all around them. Nobody owned anything, right? And also the idea of accumulating a lot that you didn't need right then or you didn't need that winter or something and just piling it up and piling it up and then selling it in some other form or writing down on a piece of paper that you owned it and selling that paper to somebody for another piece of paper and for gold, this concept of of profit and of turning uh, the natural resources of the earth into something that you could make money off of was also totally alien to this people. So the Dutch Calvinists and the British you know, uh, Puritans brought this whole notion of of owning territory and killing people to defend this territory and acquiring more and killing people in the process of acquiring. They brought that to this country. They stole the whole country. They murdered everybody here, practically, that they could get away with. And the few that are left, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the casinos, it would be more like uh, the, Sioux, the, the Sioux Reservation out in the Dakotas where people are living in the most dire poverty. The people who originally lived in this country before Europeans ever set foot here, are living in the most dire poverty of anybody in the entire country. And so that's one thing. The other part of this karma of this country is the African slave trade. Uh, this country wholeheartedly uh, was involved in the African slave trade, north and south, um, and uh, built up, um, you know, what we have, we have businesses now. We have dozens of famous American businesses that you don't have to go so far to trace uh, their foundations in the African slave trade, because it was connected to uh, trading for sugar, 
down in the Caribbean and then on the islands, and uh, this went back and forth, and then money was invested in stock markets. There are famous, even a couple of famous companies that are brokerage houses and stock market firms that do owe some of their original founding to the slave trade and the sugar trade. So basically, uh, slave trade and uh, mass murder of the people that lived here. And then this country, and I started off this little tirade here talking about the press, this country, and I'm reading a book now, uh, and that's where I started with, so let me, let me fix on that. Uh, if you are aware of these things and you find it disgusting or shocking and you've got inured to it now or you feel somewhat cynical and you think you know everything that this country has done that's bad in the world, especially internationally with the CIA and with government forces internationally, international policy, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is a book that's going to come out in about two weeks. I'm reading a review copy now, and I'm going to have the author on, or at least review the book on the air. It's called The Brothers, and there's a subtitle to it. But it's about Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. Now, I grew up with these guys. I knew who they were because I'm that old, right? Alan Dulles uh, ran the CIA, and he ran operations that overthrew the democratic government of, uh, of Iran, the democratically elected government of Iran, and uh, the... Um, the democratically elected government of Guatemala. And, of course, they, he and his brother, John Foster Dulles, who basically ran the United States uh, foreign policy because the president, Eisenhower, was out playing golf all the time and had a heart condition and didn't want to get involved. This man, John Foster Dulles, was the head of the State Department. He set American policy. He prevented peace talks everywhere on earth so that America and American um, uh, co corporations could triumph everywhere. He he first went after um, he was uh, this guy, John Forster Dulles, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. He was the uh, senior partner. Basically, he ran a law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. This law firm represented the United Fruit Company. It represented uh, the, uh, you know, the Rockefellers. It represented oil interests, everything, sugar interests all over the world. And they themselves got the United States Marines and the United States Navy to bombard and to invade countries where other countries in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s wanted to have their own resources for themselves, where they got tired of having uh, surf-like populations and colonial populations um, you know, uh, you know, dominated by these giant companies, especially United, uh, United Fruit in several Latin American countries. So he used the power of the United States military, the power of the State Department, his brother for Christ's sake, right? These two guys, brothers, ran the CIA, and uh, they got us smack straight into Vietnam. They basically invented the Vietnam War for the United States, and you could see what came of that. These guys, the Dulles brothers, are probably two of the, uh, the worst mass murderers next to Henry Kissinger, along with Henry Kissinger, that this country has ever produced. And one of the essential ingredients of this book, and this is where I started out with this little sermon, is that they controlled the press. They overthrew the uh, democratically elected um, you know, president of Iran in 1953, the first time that this country ever had a real election, Persia. They ever had a real election there, right? Um, and they elected a man uh, by popular consent. His name was Mohammed Mossadegh. And this is in 1953, the CIA saw fit to overthrow him. And why? Give you two guesses. I'll give you one guess. He wanted to nationalize the oil. 
and give benefits to the people of Iran from their own natural resources. And the British, who own most of the oil there, would not tolerate that. And they work with the CIA in the most disgusting, corrupt, violent manner to literally overthrow this man. This has happened time and time again. And every time they did this, and then they attacked um, the, uh, the democratically elected government of Guatemala because they wanted to nationalize their resources. When somebody like Nasser in Egypt wanted to form a nationalistic government and have Arabs not be subject to colonial rule anymore. When Ho Chi Minh, who applied to the United States, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam um, was dedicated to the United States. You know, he, he when they formed in 1945, when they formed uh, the Republic of, uh, you know, of North Vietnam, when he wanted to, uh, you know, form, well, it wasn't created until 56, but when he wanted to form a government in Vietnam after they threw out the Japanese, um, he quoted the Declaration of Independence. He was greatly influenced by the ideals of the United States, all of which is to say, all the time that these um, invasions and all these, all this massive bribery, Tens of billions of dollars of government money used in secret to pay uh, vicious fascist um, elements in all these countries to take back these countries for uh, corporations. Uh, these these places um, were destroyed. These places were destroyed and reclaimed for colonial um, governments like the British and the French and the Americans by by these people. And every time they did it. They, uh, the, the New York Times would say, we have to get rid of this communist, um, you know, uh, threat in Iran. We have to get rid of the communist threat in Guatemala, communist threat, the Soviet threat in Guatemala. 1953, the Soviet Union was, was like a gigantic, loud, limping shell. They made a lot of noise. Yeah, they had a big army, but they were in no position whatsoever to move anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. They had barely any agents at all in this country in Guatemala, none at all, hardly in Latin America. This is before Castro, Latin America at all, nothing in South America, nothing in Central America. Yet the slightest show, the slightest show by any elected uh, official down there, which wasn't part of the usual uh, United Fruit dictatorship or corporate dictatorship in Latin America, the slightest example of that, when the people had the nerve to have a real election, finally, bypass the church, bypass the corporations, bypass the old uh, you know, monarchy and the, the nobility in these countries, and actually have a democracy just like we had here, and they saw it themselves. They wanted to be like America. So they voted and had an election, and they elected somebody. What's the first thing this person wants to do? Well, naturally, he doesn't want to have him, he doesn't want to be told what to do every day by the United Fruit Company or the, the State Department or the CIA. He says the people who live in this country who are poor, who are starving to death, who don't have houses to live in, who get paid a dollar a day to work 12 hours a day, six days a week, chopping down, you know, bananas off trees to send them off someplace, I think that we should have you know, more of our own natural resources, and we should build up our own country. Bang, he's a communist. And the Soviets are using him to get a foothold in uh, in Latin America. It was nothing but an absurd joke. And every single time in Iran, with Vietnam, uh, it happened with Sukarno in Indonesia, who was massively popular and, uh, and tolerated having a communist party because he felt it was a natural thing to have. People wanted it. 
all of these people branded as communists and uh, billions of dollars used to print up leaflets and books to to, to bribe uh, lower levels of the military in all these countries. And every damn time, uh, Life magazine, um, uh, the New York Times, CBS, all of the major media organizations in those days, that's all there really was. There was no Internet. There were and no alternatives, uh, radio stations, nothing. All of these places would print whatever it was that was fed to them, the lies, the insane, psychotic, capitalist um, lies that were fed to them by John Forster Dulles and his brother at the CIA, Alan Dulles. And one of the reasons was because it was an old boys club. They all went to Yale and Princeton, all of them, or some of them to Harvard. Mostly it was Yale and Princeton, and they had their pipes, and they had their special clubs, and uh, they had servants, and they were all rich and white and Christian, and this is what happened in the world. And if if you imagine that the United States, if you buy, <laughs> if you buy, and I know you don't, I'm just saying this rhetorically, anybody who buys that the United States is trying to spread democracy in the world, that we're looking for freedom, uh, you know, all over the world, that we want to use our force for good, you're living in a deluded world. The United States almost exclusively, almost always, has used its military force internally in this country and externally to support global corporations that uh, murdered people in another country, that bribed governments, that owned other governments. And when you see somebody like Castro or when you see somebody like Ho Chi Minh, they were genuine heroes. They were the Thomas Jeffersons. They were the George Washingtons that we had here. And yet... Because they wanted to nationalize industries, they wanted to share the wealth of their country with their country fellow country people. Um, and yes, they had dictatorial impulses, uh, and they, uh, you know, I don't. You can't predict what's in some. You can't say what's in somebody's mind. Now, you know, their Castro's gone. I don't know. Is he actually dead? I don't even know. Ho Chi Minh is gone. You don't know. But these people, if you read their early writings. And you read what their goals were when they were young, and not even that young. They wanted to have a real democracy. They wanted to have voting. They wanted to have political parties. They wanted people to have a chance to have a decent life, just like in this country. So that's the damn shame of it all. That's the mournful, awful shame, is that all these people all over the world looked to this country and its founding and its essential documents and the way that at least it was said to run, and they said, we want to do this too. We're tired of the British and the French and the Dutch and the Portuguese and all the, and the Germans and everybody, all this, all this colonial um, oppression, all the murders and the, uh, the corruption of our own officials and the rape of our women and the theft of our land. We're sick of it. We want to be like the United States. Haiti looked at us and saw the same thing. And what do we do? As soon as somebody there pretends to be democratic or tries to be democratic or is actually elected as a democratically elected um, um, uh, leader of a country, they're communists, and we need to overthrow them just because of profit. They wanted to expropriate. They wanted to appropriate land, nationalize industries, and get rid of uh, foreign uh, corporate domination. And this is still going on right now. So this book is called, I forget the subtitle, it's called, I'll give you more details next week. It's called The Brothers, and it's about Alan Dulles and his brother John Foster Dulles. These guys invented globalism. These guys invented corruption and invasion and, and refined it to an art form. 
what's going on now in Afghanistan and other countries, the support of dictators that we see, these guys invented this. They put the Shah of Iran in power and kept him in power. This, this is who we're dealing with here. America needs to be cracked open at the seams, and it needs to be aired out. All the filthy, rotten, profit-laden corruption inside of it needs to be dumped out, stomped on like a vampire and his son, aired out, and we need to start from the beginning. And it is a good thing that we have all this new alternative media and that people are using the Internet to get their news because there's nothing more tired and old and dishonest than corporate media. It's, it's, it's useless. It's a total waste of time. And, but people don't get it yet because they're too busy watching sports or playing with their videos or eating their potato chips. But sooner or later, who gets it? You know who gets it? People who are young. People in their 20s and 30s. 70% of the people who were interviewed in their 20s and 30s said that Edward Snowden was a hero to them. This is what's happening. We have to pay attention to the present and to the future. We can't live in the past. And thank God it's actually finally happening. Maybe we will finally actually have a democracy in this country. All right. Uh, you want to get in touch with me? It's faderfiles.com. F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. Go there and you can uh, contact me, get on my mailing list, and see what else I do in the world. Thank you. I'm